Welcome, everyone. This is a brief history of power. I'm Colonel Willie Grills here with Dr. Adam Kuntz. We're continuing our discussion on evangelism. Adam, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you? I am good. Uh, how is the weather in overcast Denver today? Yeah, it's uh, it's very sunny and very mild, but it'll probably be 25 and snowing on Christmas. So, you know, that's the way it goes. So it felt like spring yesterday and it will be bitter winter soon enough. It's, um, it's actually cold here today, but it's supposed to get warm again. So, yeah. What does cold mean? You know, 40s, but there'll be like a couple hours at night where we'll get frost and then it Ooh. it goes away. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. I mean, I experienced uh, you know a, a bout of intense frustration on Sunday morning when I came out and the van doors were frozen shut for no explicable reason. <laughs> like, it, like it's cold, but you know I've li- sojourned way, way further north and never had this happen before. So it um it's all what you're used to. And on Sunday we we were at I think 55 for the high, 55 and sunny. So it felt amazing to everyone because it's been in the 30s and. And so there are kids actually wearing shorts and there are men wearing short sleeve shirts to church. There's a visitor with a turtleneck and a sweater over top. <laughs> She's from Bradenton, Florida. So it's mean, all what you're well, used to. Hopefully no men in short pants, though. <laughs> there might have been. I mean, it is pretty casual. So I mean, I'm just I'm sorry. All I'm saying is if you visit Zion and you're wearing a hat in church, uh, you will be asked to take it off. <laughs> there you go. No hat, no gum, you know. Keeping it, keeping it classy here. That's right. So, yeah, last time we talked about evangelism in yeah. a very broad sense. Right. And today we're going to talk about, you know, a figure perhaps you've never heard of before, or perhaps you have heard of him and uh, you have an opinion already. We're going to talk about church growth in general, and then we're going to talk about some practical ways uh, to do evangelism to kind of go back to the listener question. The listener was wanting to know just how you do this. What is the day of an evangelist look like one of your official titles yeah that's is evangelist <laughs> that's right uh, yeah and uh i i worked my first call was that and so we'll uh we'll talk about what that looks like is it appreciably different from um you know standard lcms pastor work and so we'll get into that toward toward the end of the episode but we're gonna pick up kind of where we left off and um we're gonna pick up in the mid 20th century and uh Let's see what the LCMS was doing then. Adam? There was a very standard thing that would happen in what was at that time not really much of a ceremony, but it's when the guys from the seminaries get their first calls. And at the time, it was like there are packets on a table in a room. The guys are there. That's it with whoever's handing out the packets. And they get the, their name is called and they get the packet. And at the time, in the 1950s, roughly every other guy from either seminary will get a packet telling him that he was going to start a new church or that he had a mission church. We didn't really have the term church planter, but one of those guys in, I think, 1951 was a man named Guido Merkins, originally son of a parson from the Pittsburgh area, which I can hear in all of his recordings. <laughs> And um, even after 40 years in Texas, and he was sent to San Antonio, Texas, and he followed it, what was at the time a very standard model 
which you get a certain amount of funding, you get a car, you get somewhere to live. So something like a parsonage may be paid for by your district. And you just go and you advertise that you're going to start a church in a certain neighborhood. And for him and for most guys, that involved knocking on doors so that the task of evangelism wasn't accomplished through mo hardly at all some kind of other medium, the way we might talk about the internet today, or you could talk about newspapers, or you could talk about radio. It was a person-to-person -person activity similar to certain sectors, especially like home improvements will still be marketed this way very often. So you might get a card in the mail telling you about new windows and doors or about solar panels or something if you have a state where that's incentivized, but probably you get those things door to door. And all of this was door to door. What Merkin seemed to bring to the table was simply greater energy than anyone else in doing these things. So that by 1959, he writes a book called Organized for Action, which you can still get used copies of. And it's really just a layout of his plan for how to do this, because his idea was, I will knock on enough doors, we'll get a certain number of people together, and then they will begin knocking on doors. Mm -hmm. And that's really the, the engine driving everything else. A lot of other things are organized, and we can talk about those in a second. But at the, at the heart of it is organized person-to-person -person contact with questions, basic questions about what they know about Christianity and an invitation to church. Mm -hmm. And it all sounds so, um, you know, remarkably practical. <laughs> and and it, as, as, yeah, and as, it was, as, I mean, as we've moved away from that, I do have a disclaimer uh, for the audience. However, we are pronouncing his name correctly. Yes. Yeah, it, it looks like a certain kind of a slur for Mediterranean folk like Colonel Grills, but it is in fact not. <laughs> right. It's pronounced in the German manner. Gidel. <laughs> so. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and, I'm, you know, as a, as a member of the Weird Name Club, I'm just happy, you know, I'm just happy we got him, him here. There is, whether right or wrong, I think broadly in the confessional side of the Synod, a distaste for things like mailers and a distaste for things like knocking on doors. Part of it's probably because you're used to seeing this. I mean, at least down here, and it, you might get it up there, Adam, I don't know. Um, you have uh, mailers in, in your mailbox, you know, for some new big box church, yeah. some warehouse looking yeah. deal. And that that's what people associate with that nowadays. And people forget there was a time where the LCMS was doing very similar things. And in many ways, and at least in a couple of notable examples, we're kind of at the forefront of a lot of this. And so, you know, I don't know if it's a confidence issue or what it is, but there's, there's some, there's some th things where people, you know, think, well, we don't do that because we're Lutheran, but Lutherans actually were doing that in the 50s, Lutherans, 60s, Lutherans 70s. did that, right, as kind of a matter of course. And, and Merkins is really, He's he's not a, he's not only not a one off in his own time. There are also predecessors, and the the biggest predecessor and the thing to know about if you're particularly interested in this Lutheran history portion of things is the American Lutheran Publicity Bureau, which which was originally it it now is kind of its own thing and 
has its own theological perspective, especially with inside, inside the Missouri Synod with Lutheran Forum. But ALPB originally is just an effort to say in it really even before World War I, we need to advertise that we have church services and what time they are. I mean, that that was the <laughs> controversial thing. It, it really was, you know, zero exaggeration. <laughs> so this idea that you need to use basic techniques of advertising or basic techniques of get making contact with people around you, that that had its own pedigree. And it, so it's not really an accident that Merkins comes out of Pittsburgh, which was at various times the headquarters of ALPB, along with New York City and Minneapolis, because that's a place where Lutherans or Missouri Synod Lutherans predominantly are speaking English and predominantly are using what are considered to be at that time, you know, I'm talking 1920s, 1930s, modern methods, meaning we have a church sign. I mean, I'm not, mm -hmm. I'm not, I'm joking about 0% of this. So the idea that you simply extend that or make that more organized or get that to a point where eventually Merkins at Concordia San Antonio, which is his, as, as people like to say romantically, his only call, not his first call, his only call, <laughs> where that becomes the largest church in the Missouri Synod at various times is because he's basically just scaling up this idea of organizing proclamation or organizing evangelism you know what and then organizing everything else around it or for it in the parish the rest of the things that the parish does that's that's really all he's doing and it, and in that way it is extremely practical it's it, he's unique in his energy or unique in his personal capacities but he's really not unique in what he's doing right and kind of the modern form of this and Every parish, regardless of side, has nearly every parish, virtually every parish, has a Facebook page, some measure of social media presence. Because fundamentally, we all recognize that we need to to be visible, right? And this is a you know a seventies or fifties version of that. And so, yeah, you know, I think the next kind of natural question that people are going to have is, well, this sounds like the church growth movement yes. <laughs> was 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 Missouri Synod part of my church growth. Now, granted, this is technically before what we would call church growth. This is oh, yeah. before Bill mm -hmm. Bill Hybels, and we'll get into that kind of model. But it it smacks of that, I think, to the modern ear a lot. And what would be a good contrast between modern church growth and this? Or is there any contrast? Yeah, there are several contrasts. One is simply that it's just a historical error to say that it's the same thing because Merkins has a book published 15 to 20 years before anyone has heard the term church growth in the United States. And so that's it's just a matter of practical organization of the proclamation of the gospel before you get this idea that you are going to take the homogeneous unit principle derive from the mission field, particularly in South Asia, and apply it to finding, you know, Saddleback Sam in Southern California in the 80s. And Rick Warren is going to target, you know, a, a, a kind of as a, as a way of finding what exact human being is going to come to our church. And we will, we will gear everything toward him. Yeah. And, and, and the fact that he might come. So Merkins is not saying, well, 
uh, we're going to gear everything toward a certain kind of a person who lives in San Antonio, Texas, and then rework everything we do, including exactly. confirmation or the sermon or the liturgy. I mean, that that really has nothing to do with it. Mm-hmm. So you, it, it both predates it. It also just is simply not the same thing, especially in its effect on the interior life of the church. The church is not completely changed in order to potentially get somebody in the doors. Yeah, it's not tailored around it. So 75 Bill Hybels is at Willow Creek, you know, community church, or what will become the Willow Creek that we know. Yeah. And same thing you're talking about with Rick Warren, but, you know, the you know, Hybels and co say, okay, we've got all the, these new homes here, or we have the, this community. And so prior to that, what would happen is the door knocking was evangelistic or at least informational. Here's our church. Here's what our church is about. Here's right. what the gospel is. In the Hybels model and the Warren model, it becomes something different. It's not what this is what the church is. It's what do you think the church should be? Right. Yep. And, and, and it's basically surveying and saying people see that we need this program, that program. They want, I mean, even things like this kind of seating or, you know, this kind of service time. And so everything is tailored to a community's felt needs. And that's a term that we used to complain about a lot, but in this in this case, it you know it's really apt here. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, uh, just a very different model. And even Hybels will later in his career, before retirement, not very long before retirement, admit that that model was a mistake. That they should not have built the church around what sinners want. Right. That's my words, not his. He had a more delicate way of putting it. Now. There's probably a Christian way to do that. What what does everyone need? The saving gospel of Jesus Christ. But in order to give that to them, the church doesn't fundamentally change what it is. And I think that in the 70s, 80s, the the true church growth movement, you you really find something closer to a community center than you do a gospel church. And yeah. Yeah. And I know that that's putting it in very pointed terms, but we've seen the fruits of a lot of this. Right. And so you have very large attrition rates, and you have that not only in churches that are 18,000, 24,000, like Willow Creek, or however many Saddleback has, but you find it in smaller churches. So a church of a thousand people, you see who have adopted similar uh, measures, they have similar attrition rates. And uh, so people are going out the back door, more people are coming in the front door. It's this very interesting view of membership. That's that's revolving and evolving. And so it's not fair, in my opinion, to import that onto what Guido Merkins was doing necessarily. Right. And there's there's some cross pollination. So if you want to if you want to come into contact with what he's doing, there are several ways. His his last book, which is kind of an, an updating and an expansion of organized fraction, eventually came to be called Creative Church Management is really hard to get a hold of, but you can find Mm -hmm. lectures that he would be brought in to give during the 70s and 80s to the graduating class at Concordia Seminary St. Louis on on their media website. And if you listen to those, you're going to hear how, as time goes on, he begins to think that that aspects of church growth, particularly, and this seems a little random, but church growth was always an international phenomenon. 
that the work at Yoido Full Gospel Church, which is the world's largest church, it's a Pentecostal church in South Korea. It has hundreds of thousands of quote members has been something worthwhile. So there, it's not like everything he did was amazing, but you have to be able to distinguish evangelistic effort from the what I think is the basic theological error of the church growth movement, which is to cater to sinners and to rework the church's own internal life according to the expressed you know, desires based on marketing surveys of non-Christians. That's that to me is the the the, the most basic error. There there would be others, right? But that's why the worship changes. Yeah, yeah. Without getting into the yeah. theological particulars, that is the big one. I mean, the pro is obvious, uh, just a larger audience and a potential to reach more people with the gospel. That that is a pro, no matter okay, what how you want to look at it. Yeah. There are people who are ostensibly coming into these congregations who want to hear the word, and we'll we'll assume that they do. And 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 so tremendous opportunity there. That's the biggest pro. Unfortunately, sometimes the largest audiences uh, are not receiving what's best for them. Yeah, and and we'll talk about this when we talk about how to. But the Lutheran Hour was used also in our signage as a net. Yeah, and so the Lutheran Hour, we were you know we're trying to make sure that's broadcast essentially everywhere, so that that person has prior acquaintance with the message they're going to hear in a Lutheran church before they get there, right? And we we don't we certainly don't think of the Lutheran hour that way today. There's almost nothing we think of that way mm. where they're going to have that prior acquaintance and then they'll come to the Lutheran church and we can just refer to it and here's a standard and it wasn't it wasn't a podcast. It wasn't you know, it wasn't the kind of niche right. stuff that you get on podcasts. It was basic message of of sin and grace that the person's getting week by week by week. And then they would do something like right into the Lutheran hour. And then some nice lady at the office in St. Louis is going to say, well, you go to Concordia Lutheran church. It's here's the address, you know, here's the pastor's name. The Lutheran hour was used as a giant net throughout the United States. And that's why LCMS churches would put up signs that said, we're the church of the Lutheran hour. Oh, okay. I know what the Lutheran hour is. I heard it on the radio, the dominant form of communication. Yeah. What we have now is somebody being, disenchanted with his non-denominational church or whatever and he finds lutheranism you know he he realizes it's not the elca and he goes to the lcms locator and pops yeah. in the zip code and crosses his fingers right right which is like it's like that's that's better than nothing and people come to my church off various things from the internet including this podcast and that's that's fine. But I think the issue, the basic issue is that is almost entirely communication among the group of people who are already some form of Christian. Yeah. It's it's not re reaching the increasing percentage of Americans who have no religious affiliation, first of all, and then saying, before you do anything else, here's a basic message about Christianity. If you want to keep hearing things like this basic message, come to Trinity Lutheran Church, come to Zion Lutheran Church, come to wherever, right? It's communication to people who are already Christian, which is like fine in its way. It just isn't really solving the evangelistic problem. Right. And and that's where we 
we often don't know what to do. What do you do with somebody who's completely foreign to Christianity? And then the other thing that's probably people are thinking as they listen to this is, well, the world was different in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. America was still nominally Christian at that time. And so now we're in a whole new world. Now, there's, there is a lot of truth to that, and yet it doesn't really change what we're doing. I don't, right. Is it necessarily easier? <laughs> I don't know. You know, it just... It kind of depends on where you're at, I guess. But <laughs> well, I mean, I I think they have, you know, and I think you and I both grew up in ways that I never, I, I had a basic familiarity with Protestant Christianity, with the with yeah. the absolute basics of Protestant Christianity, despite being quote unchurched, um, which was a term that they used long before the church growth movement. For the listeners' knowledge, they were trying to capture the fact that there are people who are kind of not hostile and kind of basically familiar, but don't go to a church and don't belong to a church, unchurched. Yeah. They use that term. So there's a way in which preaching the gospel to an unchurched person in America historically has been relatively easier than, or, or, or clearer, or uh, the process is shorter than if you have to introduce all of these concepts to people completely unfamiliar with the concept of, say, personal accountability. <laughs> right? right. If you've never been shamed for not getting somewhere on time, <laughs> do you understand? Do you actually understand the concept of personal accountability? I don't really know. <laughs> so is this a shame culture? I don't know. But <laughs> Yeah, but I I don't think it's actually different, and it's kind of it's kind of like the thing that people say. Well, you know, they were all Germans, as if no work was done to get them into the church. Similarly, in the 1950s, oh, they were all you know, the, it, there was cultural Christianity. Yeah, and that was great. Like I I would love that. We don't have that here. Yeah, that's gone here. You know, churches well will advertised to me here and it's always like we're warm and casual there's nothing about jesus christ because there's no context i guess i mean i think they should just go for it but there's no context that's gone so yeah, yeah and, and things are know, hard yeah you're you're a much more secularized city i mean i'm right here at little rock so it's got its own problems but yeah. uh, but in in the deep south or whatever you want to put arkansas in Okay, you're you're in the Baptist belt, whatever. And so you you should have that cultural Christianity. And at a level you do, yeah. but when you start peeling back the layers, you find very similar things. And so Christianity mm -hmm. for people becomes either self-help in one form or another. Yeah. It becomes a form of community engagement because a lot of these churches have adopted the Hybels Warren model. And so, okay, these churches are busy and all fifteen hundred members have a job. But what are they gathering around? And if if the marquee is anything on the churches I drive by, it's apparently some sort of political rally for Israel. And <laughs> yeah, and that's right. Yeah. You know, and so so while there are certain differences between where you are and where I am, yeah. I think once you start peeling it back, what you find are very similar attitudes. It's just here they're more friendly toward Christianity. Right. Yep. Not necessarily historic Christianity, but more friendly toward a cultural right. kind of Christianity. Yeah, right. And I, I think that that, you know, obviously when Paul is talking about these problems at, say, the beginning of 1 Corinthians, he doesn't say, well, there's a natural man who 
reads the Bible and goes to the synagogue. And, and that's so much easier than the natural man. He just talks about the natural man and the spiritual man. So if you're dealing with somebody who is not an active church member, not baptized, not believing, you're always essentially dealing with the same thing. And in a way that should actually hearten the church, because I think the church gets extremely depressed by the evaporation of cultural Christianity. And I think it means the job changes or the, the task or the processes change, especially in length. You should probably take more time with somebody who has no prior acquaintance whatsoever. But the job is still essentially the same because the natural man does not comprehend the things of the spirit. Yeah. And so kind of pulling back to Guido as we get ready to go into the practical side of this, do, do you think in our discussion we're going to see some positives we can glean from Guido and other LCMS men like him? Yeah. I mean, the the very first of which is just a lack of griping. <laughs> yes. <laughs> is that this it, the positive side of something we mentioned in the last episode about you have to be ready to be rejected is that you have to place your confidence in evangelism in the message not in your results and this is where you know if somebody is going to defame somebody like Guido Merkins he needs to realize how much work is put into and how much rejection is faced by somebody who's actually proclaiming the gospel so this is not some sort of easy, you know, it's like sometimes church growth is presented as easy bake church and everything is just simple. It's like child's play and you follow a formula and you get great results. I think that is true for rounding up a certain number of people who are already some form of Christian. And that's where I think one big distinction is and one big positive is he was trying to communicate the gospel to people who didn't believe the gospel. He was not trying just to round up whatever number of people and, and bring them into a church. Mega churches will not coincidentally often be in places with already lo relatively large church populations like the South and the Midwest and, and, its own, and, and at one time Southern California. He was trying to bring people who weren't in church into church, and that involves being rejected. And that involves keeping a positive attitude about the gospel so that his his sign-off for many of his lectures, as well as the sermons that I've been able to get a hold of, is Christ is risen, we are going to win. Mm. And so that's you have to place your confidence in the gospel if you're going to spread the gospel. And that means no griping because... <laughs> 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 because you're just a, you're announcing Christ's victory, you know. I mean, yeah. this is actually pretty fun stuff, right? And it it sounds so old fashioned, and you would think that our our audience would would appreciate that the the, the knocking on doors, the handshaking, the uh, just talking to people. It's it's much more earthy than what we think it is. Yeah, and and as we transition over into the co the conversation about how to do evangelism. I don't really know another way, <laughs> you know, like yeah. talking to people and proclaiming the gospel. I mean, short of being a street preacher or something like that, which I also don't hate. Uh, I really don't. I, I Take, take out some, you know, like wacko guy, you know, who's at a college campus or something and take out just for the sake of this discussion, 
theological distinctives. And those are very important and, and must be, you know, a, a priority. So yeah. I'm not saying that, but just in this way, that somebody is so concerned about the souls of the people around him, people he he doesn't even know, that he's going to stand up on a crowded street corner and proclaim the gospel to them lest they perish. It's really hard for me to hate that guy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you could say, and you could make this knock against knocking on doors in certain places. You could say, oh, it doesn't work. Okay. Yeah. Now well, who's the pragmatist? <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> um, you know, before you just say that, go ahead and, I mean, you could try it, or you could at least talk to somebody who actually did. But, you know, I can accept that. I could say, well, it's kind of, it, it's it, it's ineffective, or I don't get the same, I don't get the same turnout from street preaching that I do from every door direct mail, whatever. Okay, fine. That's fine. Like, that's a respectable thing to say. Yeah, it's not yeah. respectable to say, I did nothing, but what you're doing Exactly. He's, he's worse. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And and so to kind of get to the question of how do you do evangelism, I think the first thing you have to say is you have to do something. <laughs> there has to be something done. And of course it begins and ends with prayer. And I think you would agree with that. Yeah. Everything has to be bathed in prayer as far as this goes. Morning and evening, daily. You have to be praying for your own parish, for your, for yourself, and, of course, for those who have yet to hear the gospel. So everything begins and ends with that. And from there, it's what do I do? And I don't believe scripturally we can justify, certainly not through the book of Acts or any of the four gospels or the pastoral epistles or pick whatever, or even the Old Testament. I don't think we can justify a passive evangelism model that I hear lauded all of the time. Just say the black, do the red. And they'll come. I, I, I do not believe that this is what the scriptural mandate is for the Great Commission, and it it doesn't it doesn't work that way. It, it works in a very limited way. I mean, uh, someone will know about church by re a reputation or a pastor by reputation, and they'll come in, yeah. or they'll be specifically looking for a liturgical Lutheran church. Uh, but I repeat myself, and then and then so so they'll come in looking. But that that's not really what the Great Commission is talking about there. Jesus didn't say, you know, go to your altars and say the black do the red and they will and they will come. You know, he said, go out into the highways and the hedges. And so what does that look like for us? And I would submit to you that even though there there is a world of difference between 1957 and 2023, that the methods uh, should still be the same or at least similar. You still, and they've always been that way. You can yep. go back to any century of the church. You have to communicate with people. And some of it is digitally, like what we're doing here or churches streaming or whatever, but there is still a difference between that, just like the service, just like watching a service at home isn't the same as being a participant in an actual service live. There's a difference between even reading a tract or watching or listening to rather a podcast and actually having a conversation with people. Yeah. And you could say, okay, difference between 57 and, you know, 2023, it could be the same thing as the difference between the numbers in the book of acts where mm -hmm. they're huge and a, a group of people already interested in the scriptures and wanting to know who the Messiah is 
versus when they go to places that aren't looking for those things, aren't, aren't aware of a, a single unique creator. That's fine. The method is not actually different. They're still proclaiming yeah. the truths of Christ to people who need to hear them. Right. You'll always have a Jerusalem and you'll always have a Corinth. Yeah. And we need to realize that. And for the pastor doing this work, it sounds like a cop-out, but it's largely going to depend on your neighborhood. And so I would think one of the first tasks of an evangelist is to know your neighborhood and and to know who's there. I mean, in, in a general sense first, yeah. what kind of neighborhood do I live in? Who lives here? Yeah. You know, hey, what are the zones? You know, you don't necessarily need to knock on doors in the in the commercial district. <laughs> what's it? What's a residential zone? Now I know, you know, and we'll get into some kind of we'll get into the weeds on this, I'm sure. But let's just start like, what is what's a typical day for for an evangelist look like? And and perhaps before we yeah we we answer that question, I'll just ask this: Is every pastor functionally an evangelist, or ought every pastor be an evangelist to one degree or another? Yes, because the the task of the what the scripture calls the work of an evangelist, do the work of an evangelist, is simply applying the same intentionality to proclaiming the gospel to unbelievers or the unchurched, if you want to look at them that way or whatever. You're trying to bring them into active membership in a Christian congregation. You're just applying that same intention to gospel proclamation that you do to other things that you do. It's really that simple. Mm-hmm. It it really is very simple, and so it's it's holding those people, whether considered as some kind of mass of people. These are all the people within the the mailing area. I'm going to send this mailer to, or considered individually. Here is where you know David is in his grasp of Christianity, and I'm going to text him today. I'm going to try to set up coffee for next week or whatever so we can keep working through these things. It's simply applying that intentionality to unbelievers that you apply intentionality for visitation, for pastoral care, for a good Bible class to the people already gathered into the church. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and so how do you craft that? Largely depends. I do think demographic studies are helpful. Just I mean, that's going to help. Hey, if you're in a predominantly Spanish-speaking neighborhood, you might have to brush up on on your Espanol yeah, a little I'm, bit. I'm there. I'm there, fam. Yeah. Well, I mean, another <laughs> thing would be, okay, is it, pre- is it is it predominantly blue-collar? You might have to do a lot of this work around shift work and things like that. Yep. Uh, just very, you know, kind of practical sort of things. Yeah. I, I know one of the, uh, the things you see guys doing all the time is sitting at Panera, or Starbucks or a coffee shop all day with their with their laptop waiting to talk to people. I suppose that can work. And I know people are going to pile in the comments with plenty of times when I put up my free prayer sign, people have asked, but there still needs to be something a little more interactive because people just aren't going to come up and talk to you if you're sitting there, even in a collar. And I, I think you kind of have to you have to do the same thing that you do with shift work. So okay, you're you're a pastor, you don't have shift work. So so you need to figure out how shift work operates and and when people are really tired and and when they're willing to talk and whatever, right? In the same way, you have to sit there and think to yourself, imagine that I had never gone to a church mm-hmm. and here's a guy in religious garb sitting there offering silently or or passively for me to talk about religious stuff to him. Do I care? Do I want to do that? 
maybe, especially if I'm some kind of militant atheist, but even then, and for the vast majority of normal people, no, not at all ever. Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I don't want to, I don't want to. So don't take time to set all of that up and then wait for it to happen if that's not actually how they're going to engage. If they're going to engage on next door or they're going to engage on wherever, it's probably the internet, sadly. But whether it's the internet or not, you always want to move towards that kind of personal contact that's going to involve actually talking to the person. It was really nice when back in 1919, John Fritz wrote a manual called The Practical Missionary. And it's a lot like Guido Merkins, to be honest with you. But he writes this manual and he says, go visit Mrs. Smith when Mr. Smith is home so that you can speak to the family, you know, and and they're home and, and they'll talk about their kids going to Sunday school. That's great. That's a different cultural context than most of what we're dealing with. But the task is still the same. You're still trying to get one-on-one -on -one conversation or one-on you with the family or whatever, yeah. conversation about the gospel of Christ. Yeah. And and we can't give you specific answers because you God's put you in a in your own place. The the other aspect to this and part of these movements in the synod would be lay involvement. And that makes a lot of pastors nervous. And hey, you all know it. You've got certain members you wouldn't want. <laughs> having having uh, deep spiritual conversations, <laughs> and yet there is a role there, there is a role for the laity Paul, in this. Paul really delicately yeah. talked about more yeah. or less honorable parts of the body, <laughs> right? <laughs> so, and he left it at that. So so yeah. that's where we should but, leave it to. <laughs> but there is a place for um, training and, and aiding your yeah. members and how mm -hmm. to have these conversations. Yeah. Uh, and so um, yeah, uh, and so you need to. I would. I would I would say carefully vet your people. I mean, everybody, every Christian is going to, in one way or another, invite people to church. Yeah, you hope. But if you have anybody officially involved, uh, a vetting process would be would be ideal, and and certainly people who understand what your church believes and what your church is about. There's one kind of tangential question. Yeah, that, that comes up uh, a lot is, does closed communion not make it harder for us to just invite strangers in? Closed communion is hard when the stranger has some kind of prior acquaintance with open communion. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's, that's just a reality. That's just the way it is. If they have a prior acquaintance with closed communion, for instance, if, especially if the person has some kind of Roman Catholic background, I have generally found in different parts of the country is no problem whatsoever. Right. No problem. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, it's, it's technically the same same view, uh, depending on parish. Yeah, but it's usually a Baptist or even a Presbyterian, whatever, that are going to have the issue, absolutely. It's just one of those conversations you have to be willing to have. And there's a way you can do it. And honestly, what I find more, you know, the person who's more offended is usually not the person who's visiting. It's the family member or person that invited them. Yep. That's that right. gets more offended for them. That's right. Because they're they're worried about the awkward conversation after church. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, like the idea that, you know, you go to something for the first time and right away you get to do everything that everybody who's always been going there gets to do or participates in is kind of silly. 
it, it, I mean, how many other things actually work that way? Like if I, if I go to my very first Cincinnati Bengals football game, just, you know, hat tip to Colonel Grills, <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's an elaborate and horrible joke. Yeah. That can yeah, be explained. And, and nobody goes to Bengals games. Yeah, that's <laughs> <laughs> but presumably they have like a they have like some kind of you know super fan group. You know, every team does. And that that I get to sit in that section and hang out with those guys and I get season tickets right away is just kind of silly. Like that's that's not how belonging works. And I think that one issue that a lot of people have with evangelism is that when you're evangelizing somebody you are not only moving toward acceptance of an idea in the sense that Mm -hmm. praying the sinner's prayer works in American evangelicalism. You are evangelizing toward incorporation into the body of Christ. That, That entails membership. That entails a personal understanding of one's responsibility within that body so the idea that we both want to be fervent in evangelism and also practice close communion is completely non-contradictory because we are evangelizing people into a body where they are responsible to the body and to one another in that body. And that means you don't get to do everything all at once. Um, no, Really no problem yeah. there whatsoever. And nothing you have to apologize for. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, one of the other things... Um, involved in this task is related to the um, requirement to be apt to teach is um, you have to learn how to effectively communicate. And, you know, sometimes that's difficult. And and, it, and I mean this in a number of ways. One, speaking theological truths in a way that people can understand, which means oftentimes yeah. today avoiding any shorthand or any like specific lingo, we'll say. Right. The other thing is, in a very practical way, it is enunciation and eye contact and <laughs> and, and, even, and speaking loud, loud enough, don't mumble. And, and it all sounds kind of trite, but it's it's the truth. You have to be able to effectively communicate in a, in a physical way. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. So, yeah. And, and that that is definitely part of it. And it, so if you are reticent or unclear or vague or verbose or whatever in your preaching (laughs) or haughty haughty (laughs) obscure that will carry into obviously that will obviously carry into the way that you communicate with people when you are not preaching now the thing that i find most often is that the guy has what you could describe as a a stained glass voice or more comprehensively he has a stained glass manner Mm-hmm. that he adopts in preaching. And, and and when you're talking to a room full of people, you're going to speak, for instance, more slowly than you would one-on-one. But the idea that there's a giant disjunction between your preaching and your evangelism is, is, is going to weaken both your preaching and your evangelism because the task is essentially the same. Evangelism, I think, is actually easier because you're getting vastly more feedback when you're in a conversation with someone else than when you are preaching, right? Mm-hmm. But if evangelism is hard enough for you or, or you or you just simply don't do it, then think about how that affects preaching Yeah, because the skills learned in evangelism are immediately applicable to preaching. How do I communicate clearly? 
how do I say something in a way that is both clear and firm, but doesn't immediately shut down conversation, for example. So mm-hmm. you could shut down conversation, not just through being like, quote, mean, but you could shut down conversation through being extremely boring. <laughs> <laughs> right. And see, preaching is 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 a captive audience. I mean, they can get up and leave, but, you know, <laughs> preaching on Sunday is different. And so, yeah. so it's, you've got this engagement now in an evangelistic context or conversation rather that there's a, there's a lot of back and forth often in a bit of give and take. Yeah. And it, it sharpens you in a way that preaching while preaching sharpens you, it sharpens you differently. Right. And in a different direction, uh, which is a necessary direction. But there's there's kind of a crucible to evangelism, and and it can it can it can be painful, it can be discouraging, but it can also be something that you learn to relish, and something that is very encouraging, and and is very um, inspiring uh, when it can be done, even in the midst of the difficult conversation. Yeah, you know, you, you feel a kinship to to the apostles and to the church fathers and the great evangelists throughout church history because you're 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 walking in their footsteps right and you're you're in their shoes as it were yeah and like hey this is kind of what they put up with or this is what they enjoyed <laughs> you know yeah right right and that and that might be one way to look at it i mean to learn how to relish the opportunity and to see it for what it is a tremendous opportunity because w- what hope do they have apart from from the gospel being preached to them and who is called to preach the gospel. And so it's a, it's a solemn task, but a joyous task. Um, it's a daunting task perhaps, but, but far and away the best prize that life offers is the chance to work hard at work worth doing. And so why not do the work? Yeah. And I, and I just see more and more of the conversation, Dr. Coons going toward just this idea of, Knocking on doors is wrong. Going out and meeting people is wrong. And, and, and explicitly in those terms, it's not really hidden anymore. It's just saying, nope, that's not what the model is. This is what the model is. And it's something that's so insular that who could ever be reached? I, I think that that model just simply hides the work of evangelism. So if you think about it sort of in terms of two different kinds of fishing, there's, there's fishing with a net. And that's a certain amount of activity you can do. And you, you could say, I'm going to fish with a net by sending out these invitations. I'm going to, we're going to have yard signs so that the people in our neighborhood know this person goes to this church. And if I want to go to a church, here's where I could go or whatever, all different kinds of casting a wide net. And then there's fishing, there's fishing with a rod, which is more of this individual work that you're going to do when and where you can make those contacts sometimes directly without having used a net before, sometimes because the net brings people in. So if you make a call on somebody who came to church because they got a mailer or they saw an ad or someone invited them, that's the most common way. The the most common net is always a personal invitation. And then you go and you follow up with them. Now you're you're fishing with a rod, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. If you are saying, I don't do any of that, but people do show up at my church, guess what? You're just relying on someone else's net. That's all. (laughs) That's all you're doing. You're just, you're using somebody else's net to bring people in. And that's, 
we all do that to one degree or another. But the idea that that you're not, you don't make nets, you don't fish nets, you don't use nets, let alone you don't do anything else. That's fine. But that that's like saying, well, I don't teach anyone anything because they were taught in the past at a different church. <laughs> yeah. it just, I mean, that's silly, right? Like, that's totally silly. And, and, you know, you're not, you're not doing your job. So if people are just kind of coming in and I mean, an example of this is if somebody comes to my church because they're LCMS and they just moved to town, I'm relying on the work of all the people that made them think I'm a Missouri Synod Lutheran. I have to go to a Missouri Synod Lutheran church. I have moved. I will go to this Missouri Synod Lutheran church. It's, it's great. It's wonderful to be able to rely on other people's work. Don't let that be the only thing that you do evangelistically. Right. 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 And, you know, here's the thing, you know, kind of, cause this goes back to, to Guido um, and the ALPB that actually is one of the advantages, however, of synodality and having a synod. Yeah. Right. We should, we should be able to network to place people, confirm members who are moving, but also it would be nice to have something like what we used to have to a network to where we could place people who are outside of the Lutheran church, but looking for one. Yeah. And as far as I know, we don't really have that mechanism in a centralized way. No, not, not, not in a centralized way. And the experience that people have very frequently is that they move and they cannot find another Missouri Synod church who does the service out of the hymnal or something. So when you when you get disunity inside the church yeah that that uh, that affects evangelism seriously because it lowers trust and capacity to refer simply to other churches so if you know let's say my member isn't moving but their family member is or is now interested in church but they live in a different city and now it's like well can we get a church just basic can we just get a basic lutheran church <laughs> uh no <laughs> you know, it's it's not right. available for your family member because they live somewhere else. Well, the disunity thing is is an important part of this because we should all be working together. But there is mass disunity, yeah, uh, especially depending upon where you're at, and that's that's not a good thing. And I don't think that's God pleasing. Neither is sheep stealing either. And and so you know, part of this discussion is maintaining unity of doctrine maintaining unity in practice and uh and how to do that because that does affect evangelism in in a large way in ways we don't often think yeah you know regardless of where you find yourself whether you're on the plains of north dakota or northern idaho or denver or little rock or benton arkansas wherever you know you're going to have differing opportunities greater and smaller fields uh, from which to harvest, but everywhere you go, the fields are white for harvest. And so a lot of what we're talking about here is going to apply, but you know, you can, you know, where you're at, you have access, just immediate access to a lot more people. Mm -hmm. There's going to be a lot more legwork or at least a lot more miles put on the car. If you are in say Northern Minnesota or, or wherever. And you're just going to have to be willing to do that if you if you think that this is part of your task. There is an attitude that, and I understand where they're coming from, that I'm not assigned to a geographic region. I'm assigned to this parish, e.g., right, these, um, these people on the membership roles. But again, to go back to the original question, every pastor is functionally an evangelist. 
Yeah. And so that has to be that has to be reckoned with. I think I think you know, I'm not pretending like trying to do this work in a in a North Dakota winter or a Montana winter is going to be as easy as doing it in Naples, Florida any time of the year, but it is what it is. I, I think a lot of our pastors operate with a state church mindset, which is fine in a state church situation, but I would I would say in a state church situation, the evangelistic net is the legal enforcement of that religion, which allows mm-hmm. you to have a specific geographic area and to care only for the people on your roles, because guess what? The state has ensured that your roles are the same thing as the population. Yeah. Okay. And that's, and that's fine. That's completely fine. We don't have that. So if you want to say my only responsibility for the proclamation of the gospel is to the people on my roles, then all you're saying is the net, the only net that I will use is whoever happens to drift in here. And what I'm saying is that just means that you're outsourcing the task of evangelism either to somebody else or to, or, or probably to nobody, which is why nobody ever shows up. Sure. Yeah. So because we exist in a, what the forefathers called a free church situation, and they had their own opinions about which was better. All I'm saying is in a state church situation, you can afford to say, I just, I just work for and with the people on my roles because the roles have been determined by the state with the help of the church to be the population. You know, the church of England has to have a a parish for every certain number of simply human beings in England by statute. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Right. Fine. Great. In a free church situation, that's not happening. So you need to find people in a way that in a state church situation, you do not. Yeah. And, and then that's the question for today. How do we find them? And that's what we're talking about. You, you, you go find them. I mean, it fishing, it's a biblical analogy and you're using it here and it's perfect. I mean, okay. You, you, Fishing, you have a general idea where the fish are in this body of water. Yeah. And if you're an experienced fisherman, you'll know these fish congregate around here. This type of fish congregates here. Well, people are, become the same way. Right. I know that there are people in this neighborhood. And I know the majority of the people in this neighborhood are this. And so now I can come up with a plan to try to reach them. Yeah. And so that's what I'm going to do. Yeah. And, and I'm going to stop the fish analogy because I almost said, and I'll use this kind of bait, but that sounds like, uh, you know, that, that sounds, that's not what we want to communicate here, but I, I it's more of, I know w- which fish are in this, which fishing hole I'm going to that hole. Yeah. And, and so that's what I'm going to do. So not analogy breaks down when you put modern fish into it, fishing into it, but, and so, so that's what, that's what one must do. But in the last few minutes, you just kind of go back to reiterate the importance of prayer, uh, the importance of a desire for this. And I think that those two things can overcome a lot of the hesitancy one might have, unless unless there's a doctrinal hesitancy. If it's a personal hesitancy, if it's a, if it's a question of confidence or a question of just how do I do this, you know, God uh, enables us for the task that we're called to do. Yeah. And evangelism is of course his work and we understand that and it is god working in the heart but the proclamation of the gospel and in the preaching and teaching and administering the sacraments are where god works and so preaching and teaching is the first part of evangelism yeah and so we're ready to do it 
that Lutherans get very mystical when they start to talk about evangelism in a way that they would be very squeamish about if anyone else were doing it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So let's just remind the Lutherans, God works through means. Right. So if you want to carry around a basic, a, a, a tract containing the gospel, there are plenty of examples printed also by Concordia Publishing House. Or if you want to carry around a small catechism, uh, one of the little paper ones, just the small catechism, with your church name and and contact info stamped on the back. Yeah, do please that. do not hand out. Please do not. Although I hand out a lot of these, but usually I've got them in the church first for a while. Do not hand out the full catechism with explanation as a tract, <laughs> because you you will be labeled a Mormon immediately. <laughs> yeah, and we already we already have just a basic marketing problem where people don't know what we are, but it, it sort of sounds like Mormon. Or it, it it feels Northern European or something, so they they, they well, you, think you, we might be Mormons, and then we're you, like, "Here's another know, it, testament." It, it, yeah, it's it's a problem of tactics when you show up and you hand them a catechism and immediately go into the history of Germany in the 16th century, <laughs> it, which it, it's which like is going, in that in that synodical explanation. I mean, that's in there. You know that you you get a little bit of German history in there. So yeah, and and it's a good thing, and they need to know it. Very important, but it does smack a little bit of. In Palmyra, New York, there was a man named Joseph. <laughs> and yeah, so we were, want to be careful there. Yeah, there was there was a monk with a problem on his conscience and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, you don't have to tell them about Martin Luther. They, they could actually live and die without ever, 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 ever having heard of Martin Luther. You want to communicate the basics of the gospel. Yeah, because they will live and die not hearing about Jesus. <laughs> and then they will die forever. And yes. we don't want that. Right. So um, last couple of minutes here, anything you'd like to leave the folks at home with? The idea of praying before and after is, is for the messenger always a, a request to open him up. Because if you look at the Gospels, the problem that the disciples have is that Jesus will give them the task of proclaiming the Gospel and the statement of it really just logically isn't strictly necessary, especially at the end of the Gospels. Like, they have actually heard that before. There's always a sending where they've heard that before. In the case of John's Gospel, there are examples of guys going, you know, John's Gospel is really great for how does evangelism actually occur? Well, he, he went and he told his brother, we, we found the Messiah. Or... She went home to her village and she said, there's a man who told me all I ever did. And then they want to talk to Jesus personally. The reason it has to be restated is because we are really, really, really prone to focus on ourselves, on our prerogatives within the church, like the disciples fight about who's going to sit on the right hand and, you know, all that kind of thing. And when you're praying to, to have your eyes lifted up, to look at the harvest and then to enter into the work, you are praying to be changed. Mm-hmm. And that 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 is that I think really is why prayer is so important to the process. It's not like prayer gives you prayer is there, you know, as some kind of like formal step. You know, well, right. we had I I can't I can't start eating my food until I pray. All right. Just perfunctory. It's there because you're going to be changed through it. Your awareness um is going to be changed. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you very much, Adam. It's always fun. Yeah. And we hope, and you know, you guys come and find us on uh, social media or on the Discord if you want to talk um, in depth a little bit more about some of these things. So, this has been a brief history of power. Colonel Grills and Dr. Koontz here. You know where to find us.
Are you looking for a Christ-centered healthcare provider? One that values life no matter the stage and knows that we are made in the image of God and thus have inherent regenerative abilities? Or are you a healthcare provider looking to escape the increasingly woke system that employs you? Direct eCare can help. We are a concierge telehealth company founded by a cradle Lutheran who takes his God-given vocation seriously. We offer our patients direct, unfettered access to our providers with unlimited, as-needed telehealth services for only $35 per month or $370 per year. We are currently able to provide care to patients in the state of Idaho only, but are actively seeking providers in other states that would like to partner with us to start their own direct e-care clinic. Whether you are a prospective patient or an interested provider, you can learn more at www.directe-care.com.